Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist, author, investor, and serial entrepreneur. Join me as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, synthetics, uh, biology, and more, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, or the future of work. On the show, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurist is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. In this episode of the podcast, the topic is what tech breakthroughs are needed for asteroid mining. Our guest is Space Technologies Joel Sersel, President and CEO of TransAstra. In this conversation, we talk about propulsion, about telescope technology, about creating a lunar mining outpost, space manufacturing, the impact of reducing the dollar per pound to access space, further privatization, geopolitics, and the issue of space law or regulation. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics, or looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, go to futurize.org slash episodes, and you'll find collections of our favorite episodes organized by topic. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, you can go to futurize.org slash store, and we will consider all brands that have a demonstrably positive contribution to the future. Before you do anything else, please make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter, and you can do that by going straight to futurized.org. Thanks so much. Let's begin. Joel, welcome. Thank you so much. It's a delight to be here. I am very excited to speak with a space technologist. What a very, very cool job title. Oh, man, it's the best. I got to tell you, I wouldn't do anything else. <laughs> I've always well, been a space technologist since I was a little kid. It's just that when I was a little kid, I wasn't very good at it. Well, tell me more about that, because, you know, from from your bio, all you can read is that you became an astro engineer, you know, from the U.S. Air Force Academy and, you know, got a physics degree and Ph.D. from Caltech in mechanical engineering so far. You know, and then we'll we'll talk a little bit about NASA and the Jet Propulsion Lab and all that stuff. But sure. way, way before this, most people dream of being uh, something to do with space, right? So that's your do story, they? too? Do most people dream of that? I don't I know. Maybe it's just me. Okay. Well, I mean, I certainly, I certainly did, for sure. Um, do you have any idea how that got started? Oh, yeah. Um my dad was an Air Force fighter pilot. Yeah. He was a Star Trek fan when Star Trek was on for the first run. He would let me stay up way past my bedtime because I was just a little kid. And um, we lived in the desert, where of the deserts of Arizona, near Phoenix, where there was very little light pollution in those days. And when we and we would go camping, um, out at the lakes on the Salt River, which is these wonderful lakes that series of big dams that provide all the electricity for California or for Arizona and um, much electricity. And we would be camping and under the night sky and the galaxy would be strewn on the, 
on the canvas above us. And, uh, you know, earliest memories were, you know, let me tell you about that star. And the light took millions of years to get here. And there's the moon. And it just, uh, and then uh, I was, I was a very introverted little kid and uh, started reading science fiction at an early age. And uh, it just profounded, profound, the whole Lou just profoundly affected who and what I am from day one. You know, it's so powerful to hear that story because so many times when, if you think about, you know, speaking with scientists, you know, a lot of the science starts somewhere else. And uh, it's interesting. And I, I kind of expected you to have a story a little bit like this because there was something I think I found on one of your websites or something but you, you had a vision statement you have a vision statement on there um that was also a little bit different than than you know than your usual because you you say that your motivation is you know not just you know to the benefit of humanity but so our children and their children can have a sustainable exponential and unlimited future yeah it's a highly specific statement that motivates you is t- tell me more about that well um you know, life is the most interesting thing that we've seen in the universe. And human life, the human mind is the most interesting thing that we've seen in life. And life exponentiates. It it grows, thrives, expands. And in order for life to be sustaining, it has to be expanding and growing. And, um, you know, if you if you take a, a petri dish, put a medium in it, and drop some bacteria in there, it'll start growing. It'll be thriving, and when it fills the petri dish, the thriving is all done. Um, and and humanity, if you look at the history of humanity, we as a species have spread from ecosystem to ecosystem, filled, and we're the most adaptive life form known so far. We fill ecosystems and then we jump to new ones. And so for us to continue to thrive and be happy, we need to make that jump into the infinite cosmos. And, um, and so it's, it's really, Transastra is a company that's about optimism. Mm-hmm. We believe in the human potential. We think, it's, we think human beings are an amazing creation of nature. And um, I don't know, what else can I say? That, that, that just kind of wraps it all up. Yeah. And we'll jump to, we'll jump, we'll jump to sort of space matters in, in a second. But you're sure. also a uh, practitioner of CHI, the psychology of creativity. Yeah. I just wanted to briefly hit on that because um, I guess again like my prejudice of talking to a space technologist and then you say sure. well you know i'm i'm all into the psychology of creativity mm. um this fascination with innovation at its deepest um i guess you know creativity and space science is you know is as natural as any other combination but uh, how did that form uh for you this this well, interest in Well, it's really part of the same thread that you were just talking about because humanity is unique and it's uniquely adaptive 
and its ability to move into different ecosystems and so on. We're also uniquely creative. Mm -hmm. And the question of where creativity comes from and how we create is a fascinating one. And and actually, um, when I was, I spent a few years as a management and engineering consultant, and I actually consulted to Fortune 500 companies and government agencies and all that on how to innovate. And, and the reason I did this was because it gave me an excuse to do a deep dive into the philosophy and science of innovation and creativity. And it's really quite fascinating. And there, there are these, there are many thinkers from Thomas Kuhn, who wrote the Structure of Scientific Revolution, to um, Clayton Christian, who, who wrote The Innovator's Dilemma, to the economist Schumpner, who talked about the, um, the destructive cycle of creativity, you know, to um, uh, KAI and, and the difference in personality traits and how that leads to different approaches to creativity. And what I found is that when you look at this problem from all different angles, you can build up a, a gestalt of, of what it is. And, and I spent a fair amount of time building a philosophy of creativity and innovation, um, which, which is just, a, it's, a delight, it's a delightful pursuit of mine that I actually paid the bills with for a while. So moving then to to sort of space tech a little bit, um, sure. what what you are involved with now, um, I, I guess it flows from this thrust that started early on. But you spent fourteen years at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which I guess is a place I don't know much about, but it's a uh, you know there's much lore around it for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that you now have uh, realized and are, are building on, I wanna, want you to expand on that a little bit, because, you know, we're, we're talking about tech breakthroughs in, in space tech, uh, you know, in space, uh, you know, for the space economy generally. Sure. But um, it was news to me that telescopes was a big issue because... I thought we're launching new telescopes all the time. And in fact, right, you know, Biden just announced some new pictures from a very right. you know, new telescope. So the right. fact that you are, you know, building a startup <coughs> that actually has telescopes as its main, uh, you know, one of its main thrusts, that was a bit of a surprise to me. Not that I don't realize that there can be innovations in, in you know, telescope technology. How did you realize that there was such an untapped potential there and where is where is the gap because it, to everyone else we are now seeing these fascinating or starting to see these fascinating new images which you know perhaps will change uh, at least many scientists w ways of looking at the universe and you're saying well that's not really enough for the challenges ahead T tell us a, a little sure. bit about your discovery journey there Sure. Well, the James Webb Space Telescope, you know, that's recently started to take images. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it is a multi-billion dollar system that was developed over a period of decades. Mm -hmm. And it's really designed for, you know, deep scientific astronomy, you know, deep into the universe or even at the planetary level. Um, uh, and, and the thing about telescopes is... You know, this is not like, you know, back when Galileo was just taking uh, some lens and pointing at the sky and seeing what he could see. Telescope technology is a pretty um, specialized 
field, you know, and there are tens of thousands of engineers and scientists, probably a hundred thousand around the planet who work with and work on different types of telescopes. So the telescope that's really great at doing one thing will probably not be very good at doing another thing. Mm -hmm. And um, the issue here is that there really have not been telescopes that were really designed and optimized for finding our nearest neighbors in space. Um, which is kind of an amazing thing. Um, that is a strange statement. You, you have to explain that because no, I thought that's little, what telescopes were doing. No, no, no. So, so our nearest neighbors in space are the asteroids. Energetically, the, 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 the targets to get to, to and from the easiest in space in terms of the amount of rocket propellant, easier right. than the moon, yep. are, are these, these near-Earth asteroids in what we call highly Earth-like orbits. They're, mm -hmm. they're going around the sun in orbit, just like the Earth's orbit around the sun, at a distance of one astronomical unit, the same as the Earth, with you know very little eccentricity, which is how elliptical it is, or very mm -hmm. little inclination, how much it's tilted to the plane of the solar system. Um, and you know we know statistically that in the solar system, you know in the near-Earth asteroids, there may be a billion asteroids, of which we only know where tens of thousands are. And so we have so, wait, wait, wait. so we don't models. even know where they are, let alone what might be what sort of materials they're composed of. Well, strangely, we have a pretty good idea of what they're made of and where they came from and where they're going. Yeah. Okay, because we have good scientific models of all of that that have been validated both with telescopic observations from the ground by picking up meteorites that have fallen on the Earth and comparing them with what they see in space, and now spacecraft that have 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 visited asteroids. And even now with things like OSIRIS-REx and, and these other missions the Japanese and so on are doing, we're starting to get samples. So we really have a pretty darn good idea of what the asteroids are made of. There's big error bars on that. You know, in science, when you, when you say you know something, it's never true. There's always mm -hmm. uncertainty. But we have, within uncertainty, we have a really good idea of how many asteroids there are, what their distribution is in the solar system, how big they are, um, and and we're starting to get a good idea of their physical composition. You know, are they hard? Are they soft? You know, that sort of thing. Um, but those are statistical statements. What we don't, what we haven't done is we haven't found the four to 10,000 asteroids that we know statistically exist that are easier to get to than the moon. And NASA has a charter to find all the potentially hazardous asteroids. And they've had various different efforts, but they really haven't tried to innovate and come up with creative solutions to very cost-effectively find these. They're more, they're more, they don't want to take a risk, they're going to use proven methods and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, um, so Transastra is a vision-driven company, but we have our, so we have our head in the sky, if you will, but our feet are firmly planted on the ground with mm -hmm. very strong near-term business prospects. And so um, while we started the development of our Sutter telescope technology under NASA funding with the long range plan of flying the Sutter ultra mission, that will find all of these thousands of highly earth-like asteroids in highly earth-like orbits that will set off a gold rush to the sol solar system. That's our long range plan. 
But what we found is that that technology is very good at finding and tracking dark moving objects in space, like little spacecraft and orbital debris and that sort of thing. So we have a, an extremely powerful and important near-term business plan. And we're operating these telescopes every night now, um, learning the technology and tracking moving objects in space with them for commercial operations today. It's really one of the, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about creativity and innovations. One thing to be creative and innovative. But if you have these pie-in-the-sky plans that you can't get the dollars for, then it's of no good. You might as well be writing science fiction. You know, as, mm -hmm. as, as they used to say in NASA, no bucks, no buck Rogers. Um, so give me a, a sense of that then. So finding moving objects in space is sure. important, you, you know, you say, sure. ne even near term. Why is that exactly? Because, you know, well, to the untrained eye, we're, we're dealing with, you know, I don't know, asteroids that might hurt us. We're dealing with perhaps planetary defense questions, yep. but but generally, uh, you know, does humanity have a burning day-to-day -day need to track moving objects in space? Actually, we do. It's a real issue. Hmm. Um, the the thing is here, um, up until just a few years ago, the total number of satellites that had been launched into orbit was a matter of a few thousand. Mm -hmm. But within the next 10 years, we anticipate 100,000 satellites being launched into low Earth orbit. It's That's getting an crowded. astounding number, right? It's an astounding number. And it's getting really crowded. And what's happening is, as these satellites collide with each other, they break up into little pieces. And each one of those little pieces is 10 times as much energy as a high-powered rifle. And so it's dangerous. So actually, mm -hmm. people don't know this. But an astronaut visiting low Earth orbit, the, the single greatest risk to that astronaut's life today is orbital debris hitting his, his or her spacecraft. And, um, wow. it's, and it's not a small risk. This actually delayed these commercial um, spacecraft that are visiting the space station, the Dragon and the Boeing. This was actually a major concern that NASA had that delayed those a lot. And there are a number of private sector space stations being planned today. And this is a major design driver on private sector space stations, making sure that they have enough shielding to protect against the small debris. And they cannot protect against the large debris. The only thing to do about large debris is find it and then maneuver around it. Hmm. And so better ways to find all this orbital debris and derelict spacecraft and actually active spacecraft, maybe spy satellites that people don't want you to see, things like that. Hmm. It's very important and it's a navigational hazard. It would be a terrible shame if, as a result of all the successful businesses being started in low Earth orbit, that they start to collide with each other and you get this thing called the Kistler sy syndrome, which probably is not a serious concern like in the science fiction, the movie Gravity way. But if you start to breed, oops, sorry, if you start to breed breed enough debris from one satellite hitting another and so on, it can get to the point where it's a real impediment to space exploration and development. And we so, just need to know what's up there in order to navigate and behave responsibly. What are the near-term clients of what you're talking about now? Because, you know, you said uh, the number of uh, satellites being launched into space is skyrocketing it so is. clearly someone is sending these uh you, you know satellites out there yep. but what are the near-term clients that will 
pay for uh, for I, I guess assurances and and more insight about the various uh, you know perimeters of or, orbit. So it's it's all the people who operate spacecraft. Hmm. Um, so if you're a satellite operator, you can subscribe to commercial services mm-hmm. that will that will send you an alert when a when a piece of space debris or another piece of space traffic may uh, have a conjunction where you could collide with it. And then uh, they can give you options in terms of how you can maneuver around it and that sort of thing. But those alerts are only as good as the data that they're fed. And the data that they're fed only contains a fraction of all the actual debris that's up there. And it's going to be a bigger issue as we start to multiply the number of active satellites that are up there and the number of satellites that are inadvertently colliding with each other and with other debris. Because every time that happens, there, it breeds more. What else is there uh, out there near term in terms of, uh, I guess, space transportation type activity? I mean, satellites, is that what we're looking at? Or is, uh, you know, what you're sort of preparing for more a day and age of more sort of like regular traffic up up there in space and sort of transportational type of concerns? I mean, well, just, the, just, just the transition in the last few years has been profound, but it's only beginning. I, I think I saw the other day SpaceX launches a Falcon 9 on average this year at every 6.8 days. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and that's going to, and that launch cadence is only going to get higher and higher and higher as mm-hmm. more and more um, low cost launch vehicles come online, competitors to SpaceX, the Starship, uh, the Blue Origin New Glenn, the Stoke vehicle, ABL, Relativity. Rocket Lab. So cost to access to space is coming down dramatically as that happens. Whole new business models are starting. You know, it used to be that GPS was the exclusive domain of the United States government and the Air Force actually started out of the Navy. Um, But now, uh, you know, you have the Galileo system, you have the Russian system, but that now there are commercial GPS-like systems that are vastly more accurate that are on the drawing books that are being funded by the private sector. They'll mm-hmm. have, instead of just a handful of navigational satellites, potentially hundreds of navigational satellites. Um, uh, as the internet backbone moves into space with Starlink and other, and Kuiper and other, uh, you're familiar with Starlink and Kuiper. I yeah, see. for sure. Yeah. Um, what'll What'll happen is, it will no longer make sense for data centers to be on the ground because data centers want to be on the backbone. And in fact, as launch vehicle costs come down, it actually becomes cheaper to put data centers in space than on the ground because uh, a big cost for data centers is power. And um, power, you can generate about 10 times as much energy from a solar array in space as you can from a solar array on the ground if it's in the right orbit. So it will start to make sense to put data centers in space so they're on the internet backbone. So that so then we'll have this proliferation of th- tens of thousands of satellites looking at the Earth in radar, optical, infrared, all different wavelengths, collecting all this constant data. There'll be too much data to downlink, so it'll be processed locally. And then you'll have more, every, every year it'll be coming closer and closer to you know real time it's a long time before Google Maps is real time, but that mm-hmm. will happen. But mm-hmm. the only way that'll happen is if the data centers, the satellites, and the internet backbone are all in space. 
So space is going to be a, a, how we make sense of the earth, and we're going to make sense of the earth in exquisitely greater detail than now. Transastra is an infrastructure company to support all that, because all these thousands of satellites have to get from where the rockets drop them off in orbit to where they need to be for operational purposes. That's where our worker bee orbit transfer vehicles come in play, mm -hmm. into play. And the cool thing about the worker bee orbit transfer vehicles, it doesn't use rocket fuel. It uses water as propellant. <laughs> and, and it doesn't use complex, expensive electric power systems. It uses a simple solar concentrator to heat the water, to squirt the water out to produce thrust. Uh, initially water. Um, the, the rocket, the engine on it is called the omnivore because it can run on virtually any fluid. Um, and so there's a tremendous near-term market for delivering satellites and picking up orbital debris and that sort of thing. That's what our worker bee space tugs are all about. And our Sutter telescopes are about finding the things in orbit that we need to find in order to operate safely. That's in the short term. In the long term, they're all about asteroid mining. So let's talk a little bit about this uh, asteroid mining business. Um, I mean, sure. I'm curious about the technology breakthroughs needed, but even more so about all the other pieces that we've started talking about, the communication pieces, the manufacturing pieces. Uh, well, the propulsion seems to be one thing that is sort of being solved, uh, you know, by, by your system and, and, and generally also by, by some of these uh, satellite uh, companies. But the whole idea of, a new manufacturing uh, horizon. What, what is going to have to happen before something like an asteroid mining business gets up and running? What are we looking at here? What, what yeah, sort so of elements? You're, you're literally just asking for the trans-astro business plan. <laughs> and I'm happy to share the elements with you. So what we did at Transastro was we started with where we're going with a, with a um, what would it take to make a fully cost-effective, profit-making asteroid mining business? Actually, the NASA chief technologist, uh, uh, so, let's see, sometimes his title changes from chief technologist to chief economist, but his name hmm. is Alexander McDonald, PhD, and I believe econ econ economics, actually funded us to do a study to look at some of this. Um, and here's, here's how, and, and this is, this goes back to the original discussion of creativity. And I made reference to Clayton Christian, uh, the, um, Harvard, uh, professor who coined the term, the innovator's dilemma. If you look at the economics of asteroid mining today, it makes absolutely no sense mm -hmm. because the cost of getting into space and getting around in space is too high. Um, but. Now there, are, but there are no technological breakthroughs required to make this happen, other than the inventions that Transastra has has um, done that we have patented. By the way, we're we're uh, today as we're uh, recording this, it's Monday, July eighteenth, twenty twenty two. Tomorrow, the patent office has informed us that they will be issuing the patent on the Omnivore engine, which is being tested in our laboratories. Um, uh, so, uh, what we did was we said, well, what would it take to make asteroid mining and space industrialization cost-effective? Mm -hmm. We said, well, you need very affordable in-space transportation, you need asteroid mining technology, and you need to find thousands of asteroids. So we set to work on the Sutter Telescope, 
which is patent pending now and operational in the field. Um, we set to work on the omnivore propulsion system, which can use sunlight and just the stuff that you can easily harvest from asteroids, that is to say water as rocket propellant. And then we said, how can we use the same energy source that drives our rocket, that is to say concentrated sunlight, to actually mine the asteroid? So we invented and patented the process of optical mining, which shows that you can drill holes in asteroids using sunlight, extract the gases from it, and turn asteroids into gas stations. So the only way asteroid mining can be cost effective is if you find thousands of near-Earth asteroids, the Sutter Telescope, no breakthroughs required, we just need to field the systems. You have a way to mine them, optical mining. You have a cheap transportation system. Well, then what you need is the economic infrastructure of logistics vehicles that are in common use to get the cost down in space. And that's where our worker bee orbit transfer vehicles come in. But it would cost a lot to mount the first big asteroid mining mission now. It would be very difficult to raise that money. But instead, what we can do is start building small worker bees now and use them to deliver small spacecraft mm -hmm. and bootstrap the company over time. So that's the business plan. So no breakthroughs required, just normal business development. Do you think the first asteroid mining businesses, I mean, expeditions will be manned or will they simply be smaller kind of vehicles that are uh, more like drone-like uh, satellite type systems that are sort of... Or, or transportation vehicles when that are just comes, extracting. When it, yeah, when it comes to processes like mining and manufacturing, that sort of thing in space, really humans are not very well adapted to that. And, and um, humans are big and bulky. They require environment. They, they require food, water, and all that sort of thing. It really makes a lot more sense to figure out ways to automate asteroid mining. So that's where, so when we look at asteroid mining, we don't see it as a mining operation the way terrestrial mining is done. We see it more of as a resource harvesting operation, mm -hmm. more along the lines of the way bees harvest the ingredients for honey and then come and make honey. And so we, we name all our vehicles at, associated with asteroid mining after bees. And um, so our worker bees are the, the space trucks that carry things to and fro. And when our worker bees are equipped with asteroid mining technology, we call them the mini bee. The mini bee is a small worker bee one set up with asteroid mining equipment to demonstrate all the technologies in space. And NASA is funding us to build mini bee right now. And then once we have flown and operated mini bee in space, then honeybee will be the first industrial scale mining vehicle. Hmm. Now it's not huge and it's not tiny it's reasonably scaled. The, 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 the honeybee is designed to be about as massive as a typical American pickup truck that would be in someone's driveway. And it can fly out to, um, which is bigger than the cars that are parked in the driveway near where you live, I think, but still not that big. Um, and it can fly out to an asteroid and has a lightweight inflatable bag that can open up with a big opening and capture the asteroid in the bag. Now the bag doesn't weigh that much. It only weighs a few hundred kilograms because it's made out of very thin ripstop material. And it can capture an asteroid, which has about the, the, the size, it's about the size of a house. Mm -hmm. Now, when you work out how, how massive that is, it's about 500 
uh, to a thousand tons. I think, well, that's a lot. Well, it's about the mass of an airliner fully loaded taking off. Okay, we capture a thousand ton asteroid in a bag, and then we, with our solar concentrators, then we send light into it, drill holes into it, drive the water out, capture that water as vapor, and turn it into ice, and it can capture about a hundred tons of water, which would be about the amount of water in a small backyard swimming pool. Okay, so when you say a hundred tons, people think, well, what's a hundred tons? Go to your neighbor's house where they have a pool. If it's a relatively small pool in their backyard, that's 100 tons. So we bring back 100 tons. You think, well, what good is 100 tons of water? Well, as rocket propellant, it's worth about $750 million up at geostationary orbit. And the reason we know that is because we have a contract to deliver 100 tons of water to near geostationary orbit for $750 million from a customer that's already made a first payment on it. It's interesting that the first product is water when I thought a lot of the folklore around asteroid mining, which I was going to ask uh, you, uh, you know, in about a second was, was, you know, extracting platinum and like valuable earth minerals and materials that you then bring back to earth. And my question was going to be, isn't this going to crash the gold and platinum markets? But you're sort of saying that's not really where the first applications are going to be. That's like more of a secondary worry when someone, you know, finds a gold ore on some That's massive right. asteroid, That's right. you know, which we have no idea whether it would be there or not. Well, no, we do. We, we do know that there are platinum group metals. Platinum, for sure. We, right. we but, do but know. Other things. Yeah. We do. We have a pretty good idea of what the asteroids are made of. We really do. Yeah. Um, we do know that the strategic materials that are used in semiconductors are in the asteroids. The right. issue there is that their concentrations uh, vary from asteroid to asteroid. You have to find the right asteroid. Mm -hmm. um, it's not. And, and the issue is with today's transportation systems, it costs just way too much. But we have calculated and shown that once our worker bee transportation network is in operation, and once we're refueling it, refilling from the asteroids, then it will become so cost effective to get around in space that it actually will make sense to harvest mineral resources at the asteroids. Now, probably initially, we'll be harvesting those materials. It'll be simple things like just harvesting regolith to use as radiation shielding in human habitats. Because mm -hmm. there's no getting around it. Radiation shielding weighs a lot. People need to be protected from radiation in space. But as, but, but as space transportation starts to come down in cost to the cost of air transportation, then massive asteroid mining does start to make uh, economic sense. Now, it's a paradigm shift. It's very difficult for people to get their heads around it. How is it possible that space travel could be only as expensive or a few times more expensive than air travel? Well, the answer is, if you look at the engineering and physics, there's every reason to believe that it should be cheaper than air travel. And I can go into that if you'd like. Well, I am interested in this future outlook idea because, you know, in this particular business uh, of space, right, the timelines and the scales and the costs, they just have seemed enormous yeah. for 50 years, right? Yeah. So the first space programs were all national programs, you know, yeah. it was Kennedy going to the moon and it was costing a fortune. Yeah. 
And it's remained like that, except the last decade has been one of these declining kind of yeah. prices per and pound. And it's only just beginning. Right. Yeah. And that's very, very new. I guess what I'm asking you is difficult, but you know, if you're looking at a new timeline for, for kind of the next types of space breakthroughs, whether they be mining, space transportation, space manufacturing, and, and even you know, space defense and, and perhaps manned missions to these asteroids and beyond, what are the timelines we are looking at here and what are the uncertainties uh, you know, in this business? No one can predict the future. No one has a crystal ball such that they know the timelines. Um, Elon Musk is the guy pushing things the fastest. And he always says he's going to be launching next year. <laughs> well, as he, an entrepreneur, you say that. That's right. right. And, he, and he does launch quicker than other people think he can, but not as quick as, as, he, as he hopes. And um, yeah, as a, as a tech leader in a technology company, what you what you do is you go as fast as you can. And um, it doesn't do any good. One of the reasons it's been so slow is because organizations like NASA and conventional businesses, they want you to commit to a specific timeline. And in order to commit to a specific timeline, you have to do this old-fashioned aerospace planning where you put together these detailed Gantt charts where you, I, you specify every step in the plan and then if there's any uncertainty, you put in all the worst things that could happen in terms of uncertainty, you put in all these margins and everything. And then you put together, when you do that plan, it's really long. And then when you start to execute that plan, you have all these details planned and you have all these contingencies planned and you're never actually able to go that fast. So the fact that you did the planning causes you to go through all these steps many of which are unnecessary, and then you never execute as fast as you, you thought, you'll always blow the schedule in the budget, and it takes longer than you thought. And so, you know, what's really crazy is, think about this. When John F. Kennedy said, we will put a man on the moon, and we'll put him there before the end of this decade, it was less than 10 years from basically no space capabilities to speak of to Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. The SLS, this big rocket that NASA is building right now, is made out of used space shuttle designs. And it's been significantly longer than 10 years just to get, this, just to get the rocket to launch. And, and, and it's because of this, of this planning cycle and this idea that failure is not an option. So I have, a, like, like in NASA, they have this, this motto, failure is not an option. Well, the corollary to that is if failure is not an option, neither is success, and you better not do anything. And that, and so NASA has gotten to the point where they do, every year they do less and with, less with more and more. So eventually they just spend all the money and do nothing. I mean, it's, except there are great people in NASA who take some of that money and spend it efficiently. And that's why the good stuff happens. Well, so, it, I mean, it's it's alluring to say that these entrepreneurs, you know, obviously are doing everything right. But the well, point is, not. failure is an option for an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So I guess that for me brings out the sustainability questions and also the safety questions. You know, after all, we're not just 
you know, working with a petri dish here. We're we're, right. we're messing with uh, outer space and 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 you know near nearer sp- space. You know, things that could either fall down or shield or you know mm-hmm. otherwise obstruct and and change for sure alter our our atmosphere. What uh, what do you see happening there, and what sort of potentially regulatory safeguards should we be looking at in the next few years to not to slow this down, but to find some sort of happy medium between That's exactly it. That's ex- you know you between NASA and, and Elon Musk. You you hit the nail on the head. Um, I think the two worst things we could do is overregulate it or not regulate it. So there are, there are a lot of, there is a movement to heavily regulate space. I think that will bring the whole movement to its, to a halt if that happens. There's also, there are also those who think it should be fairly unregulated. And I think that can be as bad an issue. Um, Some modest regulations to make sure people are operating responsibly are important. Um, and but designing those regulations is very difficult. Designing the regulations so they encourage responsible behavior, don't drive costs to the point where it's not cost effective to do the mission in the first place. Um, and to strike that balance will be an art form. And um, how we do that is a dialogue that the community needs to start having, and it needs to involve um, entrepreneurs in a critical role as well as lawmakers and regulators and experts in different technical disciplines mm-hmm. um, with the environment and so on. Um, I worry about, uh, anyone in the space business worries about failure. You try to work, you try to understand that you will fail. In order to be successful, you have to plan for failure. Um, but when it comes to playing with human lives, it's a different matter. and it requires a different level of diligence. And, um, and, but I think the industry, I think the industry has the right approach. There are industry groups in the United States that are working with regulators to try to set up the right regulatory frameworks so that things can be done safely and responsibly. Hmm. You know, I don't know if, have, did you read about this recent FAA approval of the Boca Chica launch site in Texas? I didn't actually, no. Let us uh, in on that. So Boca Chica is the southernmost part of Texas along the Mexican border. And SpaceX has bought up that land, and they built the the launch site for their starships down there. And they just started building and operating. And they have, if you go there, it's like a a picture out of a science fiction novel with all these giant rockets everywhere, just sitting there in the desert near the beach. Um, uh, And... They started to operate the rockets and do test launches and that sort of thing. And then there were some complaints about the noise, environmental impact, and that sort of thing. So the FAA came in and said, well, we're going to do an evaluation of this. And it set the launch activities back months and months and months and months. And there was a big thing, and, and FAA finally came out with approval and a list of, I'm not an expert on this, but I think there were like 75 things that that SpaceX has to do in order to operate their rockets out of this, including like a turtle sanctuary and uh, a display to the history of uh, the region and the Mexican-American War and all this kinds of stuff. 
So I think that's an example of where the FAA came in and did the right thing, but they did it a little too slowly. <laughs> and, and the compromise that was struck, I think many in the, in the community think some of the things they're having SpaceX do are a little absurd. Hmm. Um, but if it means that we can have a spaceport built that provides, you know, massive access to space and wonderful rockets, you know, maybe a little bit of a delay is not the end of the world. And, it, it, and um, so how we strike these balances and how we change the frameworks moving forward to accommodate new technologies, this is an ongoing issue that, uh, that you know, I, I've been involved in these debates. I've served on multiple panels discussing this um, with think tanks and the public. And I've, I've written op-eds uh, with um, luminaries like uh, General Steve Quast, who, who retired as a three-star out of the Air Force, and now he's the, um, he's the chief, op- chief executive officer of a company called Genesis Systems. Um, uh, so it's a great question. It's, we could go into that and spend hours on each of the different aspects of regulation in space. Joel, I How actually wanted right? to... Yeah, I, I I just wanted to hit on a more speculative sure. question towards uh, the end here, and and you know be patient with me if this is too naive of a question. But here here's the scenario: a lot of people, uh, you know, when you get serious about space, right, they are start to worry about uh, or or get very very excited about you know alien civilizations and all all of that stuff. But then on the complete other side of that coin, you have the fact that humans that travel in space in and of themselves will physically and mentally be altered and changed by that experience. And we know this from astronauts, and you know far more about this than than I do. If you were to compare those two things, like I just, as a gut feeling, would be more worried that, you know, a kind of human space civilization after 50 years of no contact with earth for example let's say that happened that they were developing radically sort of different identities and projects and when we then got confronted with them i'd be more worried about those people than i would be about some sort of random space civilization you know alien civilization coming to to question us how real do you think this idea is that as humans are populating space, we are splitting into just not just different creatures, but just uh, cultures and civilizations with very different, not just capabilities, but really just different projects. We're Absolutely. Just different. Inevitable. It's inevitable. It's evolution. Of course it will happen. Um, and that's a good thing. Um, you think it's a good thing? I do. I do. I think, I think just like individuals grow and mature through their life species grow and mature through their lives um humanity is better now than it ha- ever has been it's very common for people to look at all the bad things that people do to each other but if you look at how people support each other and love each other and take care of each other um you know there's what 7.8 billion people on this planet and there are as a fraction of the total population, by far, there are fewer people in starvation, abject poverty, without access to drinking water, clean drinking water, than there have been, has been in history. Hmm. It's getting better and better. We are evolving as a people. You know, we have bioethics that we follow. We make mistakes. 
We didn't even used to have bioethics. Um, we have democracies that make mistakes. We used to have tyrants. Um, we are, you know, in the broad sweep of history, if you look at the human experiment, it's been a movement from darkness and ignorance into enlightenment and insight and, to, and, and we built into our genome for very good reasons that have to do with biology and natural selection. We are very tribal. We have a we them attitude. What's awesome is we're constantly expanding the concept of what we is. Even to the point where there are people trying to say there should be human rights for like not animal rights, but human rights for animals and human rights for AIs. Okay. So um, I think some of the, you know, whether I would agree with some of those, but I mean, it points out this idea that um, we, you know, in the continent of Europe used to be very French or very German or very British, you know, now they're being more European and, mm -hmm. and then Europe and the United States were more Western. Um, as we move into space, just as the United States, when, when the United States when Westerners, when Europeans settled the United States, we created American culture, which is a variant of European culture, but it also has been the melting pot of all the other cultures in the world. And then that has gone back and it has influenced and made Europe more dynamic than it would otherwise have been. As we so move space into space, it'll be a much more competence-based. Yeah. It'll be a much more, because you can't afford incompetence in space, you'll die. So it'll be much more competence-based, It'll be much more forward-looking and optimistic because there will be inherently, you wake up and you look out into the cosmos and you see the infinite horizon. So there'll be, a, there'll be I think it'll be a more positive, more optimistic, more dynamic uh, culture. And then that will, that will reflect back on the earth. And then that culture will also look at earth as the old, it's like in the United States, we refer to Europe as the old country. My parents who are immigrants refer to Europe as the old country. Earth will be the old country. There'll be a certain nostalgia for it, and you know, and, and and the biosphere will be will be able to protect the biosphere, which is an amazing thing, um, because we'll have the resources, of the asteroids at our fingertips, and the, and the energy of the sun, and so we won't have to to pollute the biosphere for manufacturing and energy. So in that long term that you're talking about, by the way, are we going to repeal human nature, or is it going to be a utopia? It'll be a, a utopia by today's standards, but at the, at the time, people will complain bitterly about all the imperfections, and there will and will probably will be war, and there will be police, and there will be criminals. But um, it'll get better and better all the time, as it has been. So, as this Kardashev scale, as we move up the energy scales, right? Uh, you 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 think that essentially at at bigger energy levels, we will be by and large, more responsible? Um, one of the things that made humanity grow up in the 20th century was the atom bomb. Had we it did have a cost, like, however, right? It, there was a cost there to the lesson, but yes. Yeah, well, but had, there, had we been as warlike in the latter half of the 20th century as we were in the first half and the central half, we would have gone extinct, full stop. Why yeah. didn't we? Because Prometheus had fire, it makes you grow up. 
the kinds of energies that we will deal with in harnessing the sun for space transportation will allow us to project lasers all over the solar system. Um, humanity has to grow up in order to survive. But there's every, every evidence that we are. You know, this, this decade's tin pot dictator, who for some reason people forgot that those guys come into existence and you have to be ready and you have to be prepared to defend yourself. But this decade's horrible dictator is less bad than the horrible dictators of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And um, there, will be, there will be those in the future, but we... I do believe that we are becoming wiser. We are learning to harness our technologies for, for good more. Joel, fascinating discussion. I, I hope we can get you back, and I'm curious to see oh, what happens with, uh, with the overall issue with Transastra and with uh, space exploration. It's, been a, it's a fascinating topic for sure. Well, this is a ton of fun. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It was a great, great pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. You have just listened to another episode of the Futurized podcast with host Trondarne Unheim, futurist and author. If you're interested in Trond's products or services, feel free to check out futurized.org store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of Trond's books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership from Below. The topic of this podcast episode was what tech breakthroughs are needed for asteroid mining. In this conversation, we talked about a bunch of topics, propulsion, telescope technology, space manufacturing, privatization, and space law and regulation. My takeaway is that space might be the ultimate frontier, but it is also a space where we, from a humanity governance perspective, would want to avoid both no regulation or over-regulation. The stakes are high. Despite the vast space available, mistakes could be costly, both immediately and ultimately. Asteroid mining is fascinating, but using telescopes to keep Earth safe makes a lot of sense too. The use cases of space tech and eventually of space manufacturing might become many, and it's hard to envision exactly when which of them will come into play. For sure, it's an activity that we all have a stake in. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars, please. If you like this topic, uh, this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 101 on the future of consciousness. Please share this show with those you care about. And finding us on social media is easy because we are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized. Conversations that matter.